Hello, Bookstew viewers and listeners. Today I have the pleasure of introducing you to a return guest who was with me on episode 12, and this is episode 98. And he looks just as good as he did and is just as smart and convivial as he was in the, the first time he joined me on the show. I'm speaking about Joe Claponis, who is my daughter Julia's ex-English teacher, or he was her English teacher, and then he retired uh, after she left the Wilmington Memorial High School. And he's been doing great things since he left. Um, he is only, Joe is only the second poet I've had on the show, poetry not being my specialty or anything. And um, we're going to be talking about Joe's collection of poetry today, and it's called Truth's Truth, Truth's Truth, Poetic Portraits, a bit of a tongue twister there. So welcome, Joe. I'm so happy to have you back again, and it's so great to have a real-life person in the studio rather than Zooming and Skyping and all that stuff. Well, thank you very much for having me. Uh, it's, it's fun to be back. So I just have to embarrass you by uh, giving, letting you share a quote from my daughter, Julia, and you were her one of her English teachers. And Julia said, what she liked best about you is that he treated us like adults, and he was willing and excited to explore literature outside the standard curriculum. Now, maybe the school didn't know about that at the time. I don't know, but I think that's very high praise uh, coming from someone who basically only reads uh, Sherlock Holmes and only watches The Office. So um, <laughs> even though you exposed her to broader literary concepts, I don't think they stuck very well. But in any case, so poetry. So I'm, poetry is not, is not really my metier. So I have to ask you, how do you even become, how do you, start, how do you become a poet? What, what, dro what drove you to become a poet? Well, I always tinkered with writing well before I had a teaching career. I tried writing a little bit. I, I tried fiction, uh, not very successfully, a uh, little bit longer pieces, fiction, short story. And then uh, I worked on poetry, and then I put it to the side while I was teaching. And I just wrote fragments of lines here and there, here and there, here and there until, ironically, I had a, uh, uh, an AP English class around, I think it was uh, 2005 or so. And the kids kept challenging me. They kept saying, come on, you can write a poem as good as Robert Frost. If you can write a poem <laughs> as good as Robert Frost. And I said, I'm not Robert Frost. And so uh, I wound up writing a poem that's in this collection, Spring Vision, which has the tagline, I'm not Robert Frost. <laughs> and that was a poem that, at that point, I submitted to the uh, Eagle Tribune Robert Frost Foundation Spring Poetry Contest. It placed second. Wow. I said, wow. I said, I'm a poet. So were you, were you comfortable doing it? How, how much of a struggle was it for you to, I mean, I could see responding to the students with bravado and saying, well, you know, yeah, I can do this, but um, how, how long did it take you to write it, and how much scratch-outs do you have, or how many times did you delete lines? Oh, my goodness. It, it, it depends. Some, you know, there's 
in this collection, there might be one or two poems that I wrote almost on first draft, but most of them 15, 20, 30 drafts, just going over and over, tinkering with words, tinkering with the line, changing a line break, changing the order of lines, looking at it in, in different ways. And um, I've, had, I've had a chance more now that I'm retired to do, to do that. But while I was teaching, I started writing tanka, which is a Japanese form. I was going to ask you about that because I noticed in, um, in the back of the book you mentioned tanka. What is, what is the form for tanka? Uh, tanka is um, set up with 31 syllables, and so it works five, seven, five syllable structure so that the, the first three lines are analogous to a haiku, right. and then it closes with two seven-syllable ah. lines. And uh, one of the poems in, at least one of the poems in the book, is a form of a tanka, which would be the poem called The Juggler. And typically a tanka does not have a title, but I gave that a title and I wrote it in that form. And there's a little bit of debate about how the form goes these days. Should in English, the 31 syllables don't match as well as in Japanese, oh. so that um, it's it's more a, a short lyric poem, as it were. But does have like I I like to just uh, bash out haikus every once in a while if I'm thinking of something, and I find the format very easy. I mean, the biggest restriction is you know getting like you say getting the right words and and hitting the syllables the way you're supposed to, but. Um, do you like having a format as opposed to like free verse? Well, the majority of the poems in my collection are are free verse, and I, I recognize that form is something that you can that a writer can rely on. It depends upon it depends upon your purpose, it depends upon what you're doing. I think you have to be aware that, for example, a sonnet is a very nice form for an argument. Because you can say um, a quatrain, four lines that outline an argument. The next quatrain would go on, perhaps if you're doing a Shakespearean sonnet, and you would say, well, the next quatrain is going to expand on that, and it's going to develop a little bit more of a metaphor. Then the third quatrain is going to give the opposing point of view, and then you're going to come to a conclusion in the final couplet. So, you know, that's a good, good use, perhaps, for a sonnet to have a, an argument of sorts. And if you take a haiku, you're, you're, you're trying to create almost an image, usually, of, of nature, related to nature, but not necessarily, because there's um, an offshoot of haiku called senru, a humorous senru. I'll quote it right now that my mother loved. Um, it was published in a small Australian magazine called um, uh, The Wasp. It goes like this. Mackerel for lunch. Everybody has plans except the cat. 
<laughs> and, you know, I mean, <laughs> yes, it's, it's humorous because, you know, who wants to eat mackerel, oily fish, well, <laughs> cat, I mean, everybody has plants except the cat. And that's the, the, the nature of senru, to be in the form of a haiku, but to be humorous. And so there are different, different forms, different purposes. Um, I played around with rhyming. I played around with the, um, the epigram. When I was in college, I had a professor, J.V. Cunningham, who's a big name in American poetry. I mean, huge. This guy's a master, okay, of formal poetry in rhyme. And he was very good writing epigrams. So he'd, he'd write an epigram, like one um, that went, life flows to death as rivers to the sea, and life is fresh, but death is salt to me. And, uh. you know, it's, it's logical, it rhymes, it has, I think if we counted it out, there would be 10 syllables per, per line in the couplet, and it's, it's very, epigrams are a very logical form, and I sort of, you know, I tried that, well, it wasn't all that successful, I've written a few, um, so I think form depends on what it is you want to accomplish. What do you, I, you know, I have heard that um, students in general, and that would be maybe stretching through your entire teaching career, really enjoy poetry and somehow I, maybe it's because of like Emily Dickinson that I always saw it as kind of a feminized thing, but I think in my, in my, in my experience after school and I, after I finished school, I found that men and boys really did enjoy poetry too. What, what do you think it is that attracts not only students but people to, to enjoying poetry, even those who don't even try to write it? Well, I think it's the, um, the, the brevity of poetry, so that you, you can read a poem in, typically in one set, in one sitting, and you, you get something from it, you can put it down. Unlike a, a novel where you have to go through day by day by day for a few days to, to finish it, and a poem is short, it gets to the point and it um, sort of brings up maybe memory, brings up uh, metaphor, it makes, makes you think there's a lot more room for interpretation in poetry, although the window of interpretation, I always say, is not open all the way. It's a rather narrow opening. Well, but you know, some poetry is open to different interpretations, right? I'm thinking of The Road Not Taken, the Robert Frost poem, that there's like this one main interpretation of it, and then like a couple of years ago, somebody said, no, 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 that's not how it's supposed to work at all. It's not, he's not regretful of not taking the path, and, and it started this whole big controversy about what did the poem really mean. Well, I think one of the things about poetry and about literature in general, uh, any writing, is that there's a dialogue, it's a, it's a silent dialogue between writer and reader. And what happens is the, the writer puts meaning on a page, because that's what you want to do in writing, you want to put meaning there, 
and then a reader reads that and dialogues with your meaning and creates new meaning. So that sometimes what you say in a poem is maybe not what you intended, but a reader will take it another way. I'll go back to that poem that I uh, kind of recited off um, about the cat, okay? Macro for lunch, everybody has plans except the cat. And I got a note from, it was published in a magazine in Australia, and I got a m note via email from a doctor in Australia saying, well, you know, Merkel is very good for people, and people shouldn't be. <laughs> and it was like he, he took a different, he, you know, he, he kind of missed the humor of it, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I guess I've always, in my reading of poetry, I always depended on my teachers to, um, to lead, lead me through interpretation. I mean, I can especially remember of course, studying the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock for what seemed to be a whole year in school. But, you know, I came to really love it. And when I hear, you know, bits and pieces of it used as quotes, it always just brings me back to really learning the teacher's interpretation of what the poem was all about. I don't feel confident enough mostly to go off on my own and try to interpret poetry. I mean, some of it is, is you know, obvious and, and it's easy to read and easy to understand, but some of it seems like I'm thinking of um, Allen Ginsberg and the Beat Poets and Howell, and that stuff to me always just, I was always like, yeah, I don't really understand what you're trying to say. Well, I think poetry, like, any other type of writing has a concrete level, which, you know, a literal level. Here's literally what's being said. And then the next step is once you grasp the, the literal level to say, well, is there anything going on that's metaphoric? Is there anything that's going on at an abstract level? And that's, that was a way that I always approached poetry with kids. I would say, okay, think of it this way. We're, we're going to read it and it says what it says, and it means what it means right, right on the page. And let's not jump into any kind of, there's no such thing as a hidden meaning. Poets would be cruel people if they hid meanings. They, writers would be cruel if they hid meanings. Writers want to be understood. They don't want to be misunderstood. But they also want to say things the way they want to say it and what they're saying, especially poets to me, um, may just may not be as decipherable when I'm reading them as they thought it was when they were writing it. And they're also writing to satisfy themselves. Well, every writer writes to satisfy him or herself. And when you, uh, when you look at a poem, when you read a poem, I think you, you have to think that well, there's going to be something metaphoric going on. That metaphor is one of the bedrocks of poetry. I was just reading some criticism the other day where a, a critic was saying that, well, the bedrock of poetry is memory, metaphor, and meter. And I, I don't disagree with that. Mm. I, I sort of disagree with that meter part because not every 
poem needs to match to a specific meter. But certainly metaphor is at the core of poetry. And if it's my contention that if a metaphor is not clear to literate readers, then the poet has failed. That's interesting because I think with some of them, it always seemed like the more obscure they could get, uh, the more uh, <laughs> the more it was popular, and the more, but the more I didn't like it. But let's let's move on to your poetry because I um, picked out four poems in your collection that I really enjoyed, and I asked you to pick two to read to us. So um, the two poems that I really liked were the quarries and still life in the time of the virus. So um, whichever you want to choose to read first, if you could read uh, one to us, and then we'll discuss it, and then the other one, that would be great. Okay, let's, let's start with um, the quarries. The quarries. During the summer when the heat hung heavy, all we wanted was to be cool, so we hiked to the quarries. We were as oblivious to the stories of the dangers of diving at the quarries as we were oblivious to the history of how the rock had been cut and hauled to Charlestown over a hundred years before to build the Bunker Hill Monument. The only history we cared about was our history, the history we would make diving and retelling stories of diving at the quarries. The water giant basins of rainwater and snowmelt fed by groundwater springs was, we had heard, cold, dark, and deep. The surface so dense clouds were not reflected in it, and what lay below was obscured. Our perch and our launch was a ledge cut into the walls of granite that rose in jagged angles 20 feet or more above the water. Over one lip of the quarry, tops of trees still, still and green rose skyward. Over another, the towers of the Hancock and the Prue were barely visible through summer's haze. Like the men who had labored there purposely, purposefully cutting and shaping blocks of stone for a historical monument, we worked at cutting and shaping our legacy as we surveyed and plotted how we would leap outward, flinging ourselves as far from the rocky edge and as far into air as we could so we would land in what we imagined was a spot of cold, wet sweetness. Even now, in memory, like a dream but not dreamlike, I can feel the exhilarating terror of feet no longer on solid ground, of hurtling out through the heat all an intoxicating blur and the knowledge, the terrible knowledge, that a decision once made will unfold in the arc of its course leading to denouement, that unlike fixed monuments of stone cut and shaped by willful men will take its own shape and form, leaving its own impact. That just really got to me on, on a bunch of levels. Um, mostly because we vacation in Maine and um, my daughter and my nephews have swum and leaped from uh, the stone tops of quarries while I sat there and just prayed that nobody hit something, their heads there. But, um, you know, to them and to kids, 
there was no question that the freedom that you felt leaping, and of course a little bit of the risk that you were taking, and your parents, of course, mostly not wanting you to do that, you really captured the moment, moments in time of a child, but were able to kind of carry that over to, to being an adult and remembering it. I, th I just think it's, it's very beautiful. Well, thank you. Um, sort of what spurred that, that poem was I was at the Griffin Museum in Winchester, and Arthur Griffin, there were some of his photos on display, and there were a series of them that were photos of the Quincy quarries. And there was one of a swimmer that he caught in midair as the person leaped off the quarry. And I thought of how there was a hike that I took to the quarries when I was a kid with the guys my age to go swim at the quarries. And so, you know, that's where the poem started stirring, stirring up. And I had not realized, I came across it as a chance fact, that the Quincy Quarries was where the stone for the monument at Charlestown had come from. You know, I'd never put two and two together. Uh, I thought, oh, the Quarries of Quincy, yeah, they use that for, for, for gravestones. And they've used it, you know, for steps of buildings in Boston, but I never thought of the Bunker Hill Monument is coming from Quincy Quarry. Yes. Well, wait a second, make a monument, history. And then there's, you know, the fact that a lot of um, Italian stone workers came over from Italy to work in quarries, and when quarries were mined out and all the stone was gone, people had to find different careers, and, you know, I, I don't think there's that many active quarries around anymore like they used to. And you know, there's cars found in quarries, there's mysterious deaths. I just think it's a, you know, there are places of um, endeavor and mystery and, and risk. And I just, I just think you caught it, you caught it all there. Well, thank you. And the, the, the Quincy quarries, yes, they, they were, um, you know, legendary in the, the area of Boston I grew up in. That it was sort of a rite of passage going to the quarries. Not everybody dove, but you know, you went to the quarries and you saw people dive. Maybe you were going to make that dive and the police came and chased everybody out <laughs> at that time. Um, and you know, there was, there was legend of you know, what was buried in the water. Yeah. And there, there were, you know, more recently, probably about 25 or 30 years ago before they were filled in, there was uh, dredging of the quarries to see if there were bodies that, it, that gangsters had dumped. So, yeah. you know, it's, it's just amazing. I think um, you should send this to the Quincy newspaper and, and have them publish it. So um, before we go to the next poem, how about, um, how, how did this collection come together? Is, is this your first published collection? Yes, this is my first published collection. And <clears throat> what happened is I, I took poems that I had written over a period of almost 20 years and put them in here. Actually, there's this one that's very early. It's more than 20 years ago. It's 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, 
over the last 20 years or so, and I said, oh, I think, you know, I'd like to try to put a collection together. And I tried one publisher, and it didn't pan out. And the publisher that I worked with, Kelsey Books, they put out a number of, uh, a number of books annually, and they work under a series of different imprints. They have one that's just metered verse, and they have the, um, this, this uh, imprint that I worked with, and you know, they, they responded immediately. They said, we like the collection. Uh, I had worked with my niece who uh, helped me organize them. Uh, and I've worked a little bit with a Wellington guy, John Bishop, who writes poetry. Ah, John's John, been on the show. And John has, John read poems, and he talked about them with me. We corresponded via email, and we said, well, what do we think of this arrangement? What do we think of that arrangement? And initially, I was going to call the title Daily Games, because this poem, Daily Games, about baseball, and that's why I structured it in nine sections, so that it was going to be you know, <laughs> different innings. And then as I looked at it, I said, hmm, you know, uh, there's, there's portraits here. We're, we're creating portraits. And truth is something that I think, you know, what is truth? What is, what is true? What is it that we see is uh, an element that's here. Well, the truth is we're running out of time, so, so okay. we got to get to the next poem. And so the next one you're going to read is, oops. Still life in the time of Iris? Yes. Okay. Still life in the time of the virus. There is the cliché of rosy-fingered dawn pushing away the curtains of night. There is morning bird song for me, but not for me. There is the sky, perhaps no bluer than it has been, yet bluer still. There are the church bells. I heard them before. I hear them again. There are the walkers walking together, but apart. There are the neighbors, but not at the fence line. There is a smudge in the trees, crows staging as evening calls. There are the icy chips of stars across the sky, still indifferent from afar. There is this stillness, an unusual stillness, that is now no longer new. <sighs> I think that captures our last almost three years as well as any number of uh, nonfiction and, and uh, newspaper articles that um, 20 years from now, this would help us remember what we've been, we've all been feeling. Well, the, play it with the, the title, Still Life in the Time of the Virus. A still life as an artist would paint a still life, but then there's still life in the time of the virus. There's still life going on. And then there was an incredible stillness last spring, in the spring of 2020, just how, gee, you could hear the birds 
better than you'd ever heard them before. There was, there was not the background road noise. The pollution was down low. The sky actually, to me, seemed bluer than it had ever <laughs> seemed. And, y you know, the, the other thing that struck me during that time was how, w you know, we as people, you know, have sort of a egocentric or a self-centric view of the world. You know, yeah, the world reviews around, revolves around me. But guess what? The world's going to go on whether we're here or not. It's going to continue. And that's what those birds singing said to me. That's what uh, everything that was going on. And, and as I, I watched people walking down the street, neighbors who I knew always walked together and were friends, socially distanced, separated. My neighbor and I would often get together, although we don't have a fence between our property, but the property line, get together and talk. We'd instead, I'd sort of be over here, he'd be over there. We'd sort of be shouting across a distance to one another. And it just, yes, this is time that we're going to remember, we will remember forever. And uh, I have to say, I will remember that poem forever. And uh, I'm sad that we're out of time, but I want to thank you so much, Joe, for joining me today, for sharing your poetry with us. And um, I'll, I'll be thinking about, about that one for a while. Thanks again for being my guest. And uh, books do uh, viewers and listeners. I hope uh, this provided a peaceful and enjoyable half hour for you. Have a good night. <laughs>